In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless Roger's message today, that his teaching would be fruitful to our lives, uh, that your spirit would be present as we study your word. I pray your word would be transformative and move and shape us. We thank you, God, for being uh, worthy of our affection, worthy of our praise. Uh, there's nothing in, in the whole world more worthy than you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Nate. Well, welcome. Whether you're joining us online or for all of you that are here in person, thank you for being with us today and just taking some time uh, out of your weekend and your schedule to share with us. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Roger Rushing, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here today. And like Nate said, uh, I get the privilege of starting this new series, this series called No Thing Sacred. It's got a strange name, so before we jump into the series, I want to uh, kind of give you an idea of what's underlying and underpinning this series, where it kind of came from for us. And the idea is, is that sometimes we have this tendency, and, and way too often we have this tendency, to look at things that, that aren't sacred and treat them as though they are sacred. And equally, and perhaps even worse, we sometimes neglect the things that are sacred and intentionally or otherwise treat them as though they are not. Or to say it more succinctly, we sometimes see the profane as sacred and the sacred as profane. And so what we're talking about is how, how Christianity is different. It doesn't have these, these same sacred ideas and, and ways that other religions view things. Just as a quick example, you think about Moses when, uh, when he's uh, at the burning bush and God is calling him to this mission to, to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The first thing he says to Moses is, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. But what's interesting is when this meeting with God is done, the bush that was burning but not consumed, it doesn't burn anymore and Moses just puts on his sandals and walks away. There's no shrine to the bush. There's no pilgrimage we make to the bush because the only thing that made it sacred was God and the presence of God in that moment. So over these few weeks, we're going to talk about three different things. We're going to talk about God and the sacredness of God and who God is. We're going to talk about the sacredness of time, and we're also going to talk about the sacredness of people and all people in light of who God is. So that's just kind of an idea and a thumbnail of where we're going, and, and it seems fitting that we would begin at the beginning. And so we are, in the beginning, God created, right? Whether you've grown up in the church or not, you've probably had some exposure to this story because so much of the story has permeated even popular culture. And if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story a lot of times. And if you're one of those people that sometimes does those read the Bible in a year thing, uh, everybody gets through Genesis 1, right? I mean, you give up usually around like Leviticus or Numbers or something like that. But everybody gets through Genesis 1, so you know this story. It's incredibly familiar for a lot of you. And it would have been familiar for the people, too, in a way, but what, one thing that we sometimes forget is this was not the only kind of origin story that was floating around at the time. 
In fact, all of the people that surrounded Israel, they all had their own cultures and their own kind of origin story or creation myth, their own way of explaining the world. And a lot of these, these stories kind of follow the same path and the same vein. And they even use the same language. So even this, in the beginning when God created, that, that's kind of how all of these stories start out, regardless of who it is. And really, if you take most of these stories, you can lay them side by side. There's a few details that are changed. But the biggest thing that changes is just the name of the God that wins at the end. So it's the same story, just with a different hero. And so sometimes this familiarity can kind of lull us to sleep. And it can make us think, oh, man, I've heard this before. And whether that's you today with this particular story or even the ancient people, they too would have been lulled in this way. And what I mean by that is, is take, for example, uh, the things, the stories we tell our kids. All right? So my wife and I, Joanna and I, we've got two little kids, a four-year-old Lizzie and a two-year-old Pete. And we are usually on the same page with parenting. Uh, I mean, we, we bring different flavors to it, different strengths and personality, but we're usually on the same page. Occasionally, we're on different pages. Uh, sometimes we may be in a different chapter. And one of those places where we kind of diverge is uh, our uh, idea of how much fear our kids can handle. All right, so we have differing opinions on this, and it's played out in several different ways, including a couple weeks ago when uh, I told Lizzie her first ghost story because she asked me to, uh, and I actually only told her the first half of her first ghost story because it did not go well. Neither did bedtime for the next three days. Uh, the only thing we accomplished was Joanna saying, I told you so. <laughs> but the story I want to tell you comes from two years ago about when Lizzie was about two, and if you've been around little kids, you know they like repetition, the same thing over and over and over. So I would tell her the same stories over and over and over. And she was in this phase where she just really loved the three little pigs. That was a story I had to tell over and over and over. Well, if you're like me, you get bored with repetition because you're no longer two. And so I decided one day that I, I would shake it up a little bit. So I started it once upon a time, and she knew what was coming. And we talk about the pigs and how the lazy pig builds his house out of straw and the less lazy one out of sticks, but the really responsible one out of bricks. And then this wolf comes and blows the houses down. The two little brothers run, and they get to the responsible brother who's done all of the work and worked hard and put forethought into it, the one we're all supposed to emulate because if we're lazy, a wolf will eat us. That's the whole point, right? <laughs> so she knows what's going to happen. She knows that this big bad wolf is going to go home hungry. So I switched it up a little bit. So this time I said, the wolf huffed and it puffed. And then I started talking about how the walls began to shake. And her eyes started getting real big. She'd been kind of lulled into the rhythm. She knew it was coming, but now suddenly something's different. And that wolf huffed and puffed and the mortar started to fall out and a brick here or there fell. And on the last great huff and puff, the walls came crashing down. The wolf ran in and ate all the pigs. And I grabbed one of her stuffed animals. Arr, 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 arr. Um, Bedtime went poorly for another week or so, uh, but it was real exciting. I mean, it wasn't boring anymore, and she didn't ask for the three little pigs for a little while. And then when she did, she said, tell it the way it's supposed to be told. But that's what, what kind of would have been like even for, for those who are hearing this story for the first time. And this story, it's really, it's a statement of faith. And it's not just a statement of faith, but it's a really courageous statement of faith. And it's a statement of faith about who we are. And how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to creation. But what makes this such a courageous statement of faith, or one of the things is, this story was probably written down around the time of exile. 
It was probably written down when the people had been taken from their land and the temple had been destroyed, and, and many of them thought that God had either abandoned them or that the Babylonian god Marduk was stronger and had conquered Yahweh. In fact, that's what Babylon thought. They went to war and they won, so obviously their god beat Yahweh, and they even took the Ark of the Covenant out, and to them they had imprisoned Yahweh. So they take God even into exile. So it's this crisis of faith, but in the midst of that, there are some, like Jeremiah, who say, no, 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 that's not what's going on. We're here because we failed, not because God failed us. Not only that, but God is here in Babylon with us, not enslaved and defeated, but here ready to take us back and eventually to bring us out. So in the midst of that, they have the courageous faith to write this story. And what makes it so courageous, and it obviously it existed in like oral tradition before, but the way it's written down, what makes it so courageous is they're basically in some ways telling the anti-Babylonian story. So it's kind of like if I started out not with Once Upon a Time, but I started with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know I'm going to tell you Star Wars, right? So it's like I started out that way, and you're like, okay, I know this story. It's starting to check out. But instead of telling you Star Wars, I told you a different story. And more accurately, it's like I told you the opposite of Star Wars. Now I try to think about what's the opposite of Star Wars. All I came up with is like, Land piece? I don't know. But whatever the opposite of Star Wars is, that's kind of how this is. So it starts out with that same language, and even the, the Israelites that are hearing this, the Jews in captivity, even as they're hearing this, they're probably going, yeah, 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 we know what happens, all this stuff, and then Yahweh wins in the end. But it quickly starts to take a turn. And in order for us to see that turn, I want to just super briefly look at the Babylonian story of how things came to be. Now, I'll tell you right now, the nerd in me wants to take like three weeks on this. Um, but Amanda has told me in Kid City that I have 30 minutes. So I can't take three weeks, but if you want to talk about some of this stuff later, it's exciting to me. So here's the real thumbnail version. Basically, there are these two primordial gods. One is fresh water and one is salt water. And their waters commingle, and as often is the result of commingling, they've got kids. So they give birth to all these kid gods, although they're, they come out as adults, it's weird. But they give birth to this next generation of gods, and everything's okay for a while until the gods, the new gods, the children gods, they, they start making too much noise. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this. I have some particularly loud kids. Uh, I feel kind of like the dad god did because he starts to get super annoyed. He can't sleep. They're just making all this noise. And so, unlike me, he decides to kill the kids. That's his plan, okay? So, so he talks about this plan, and one of the the children gods, they overhear this, and they go back, and they're like, man, dad's going to kill us. And they're like, well, we don't like that idea. Let's kill him instead. So a group of them get together, and they successfully form this plot and go and kill dad god. Now, mom god didn't want dad god to kill the kids, and mom god didn't want the kids to kill the dad. But she didn't do anything to intervene on either side. And even after it was done, she didn't, like, take revenge or something. So time goes on, and now... Now it's within the kids themselves. One group is, again, making too much noise and really bothering the other group. So they say, look, we got to take care of these guys. Let's go to mom and get her to kill them. So they go to mom, and they're like, mom, when these guys killed dad, you didn't do anything. You're kind of terrible. And she's like, whoa, you're right. So she begins to create this army of monsters to go against the other kids. Well, again, the kids hear about this, and they get together in this council, and they're like, what do we do? And, and they're scared. And Marduk who's just one of the other gods, he steps up and he says, I'll be the champion. I will kill mom for you and all of her army of monsters, but then you have to make me the supreme god. 
And they're like, well, we don't have a better offer. Let's do it. So long story short, they have this great big battle. Marduk successfully kills all the, the monsters that mom has made. And then in a really graphic, not PG-rated way, he kills mom. And then even more gruesome, and we can't discuss it in detail because kids are here, he takes the, the dead mom, and that's what he makes creation out of. Super gross. So he makes creation out of this dead mom, and he becomes the, the supreme god. But it's not very long before the gods come to Marduk with another problem. They're like, man, life is hard. Like, keeping this world we've got going is really hard. Also, we have to get our own food, and we're gods. We shouldn't have to do this. So he says, you need to create slaves for us to make our lives easier. And Marduk's like, yeah, man, why didn't I think of that? So he kills another god, and out of that blood creates what Marduk calls the savages. It's us. It's human beings. And the sole purpose of the savages is to make life easier and more fun for the gods. So to feed the gods and stroke their ego with praise, and also if the gods get bored, to give them a plaything to just kill in fun ways, right? And that's their existence, the end. Like, the moral of the story is just, you really want to try to stay on the God's good side as much as you want. You want to be a favorite one so that, one, they don't kill you for doing things wrong, but also so they don't kill you when things are going fine, they just get bored. So that's a whole story in a nutshell. Now, if we look at the creation story in Genesis 1, we can see it is very, very different. It starts out in the same language. And even the, the first uh, audience hearing this story would think we know how this is going. There's going to be Yahweh, and then these other gods are going to battle, and Yahweh wins. And it starts out feeling that way, so it says, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. That formless and void, that phrase is tohu and bohu. And tohu and bohu together are really the embodiment of chaos. I like to liken them to a, a tag team wrestling team, right? So it's kind of like you have God on one side of the ring and then Tohu and Bohu. They're going to have this epic battle and fight it out and eventually Yahweh wins and probably creates all of creation out of their carcass, right? But that's not what happens. Tohu and Bohu, they're not deified, they're not personified, and there's certainly no match for Yahweh. So what does Yahweh do with the void and the, and the chaos and the formlessness? He invites. God simply invites saying, let there be light, and boom, there's light, and with that light, chaos begins to be constrained, and boundaries are put in place, and organization begins to happen. And even the way the story is told is incredibly ordered and organized. There is no chaos of battle. There is no threat. The other things that are typically gods, things like the sun and the moon and the stars that have names and are gods, they're reduced to just lanterns in the sky. That's all they are. There are no other gods in this account. There's certainly no battle to be fought. And again, this god doesn't even create, certainly not through violence, but not even through coercion. Each of the, the days, it begins with this let there be. And then that invitation is answered, and then God reviews it and, and looks at it and calls it good. And we have the same pattern repeated over and over and over. And so we have this structure and even within the structure, there's a lot of structure, and some of it we don't have time to go into. But just looking at a couple things, the way that the first half of the six days and the second half of the six days, the way they play out. So the first half, the first three days, are all about creating that form. It's dealing with the formlessness. And it's creating resources that the things created in four, five, and six are going to need and use. So day one corresponds to three and four, I mean, two to four and three to six. I got thrown off there somewhere. 
Oh, there we go. One is four, <laughs> two is five, three is six. Math is hard. So we look at it and we see on day one, it's let there be light. And light is this space now that's created. And then in day three, we see that that space is filled with the sun and the moon and the stars, right? On day two, we have the separation of waters. So the creation of sky and then all of the terrestrial waters. And then on, on day five, we see that that's filled with birds and with fish and all the things that swim in the sea. And then on day three, we have, we have this water is given boundaries. And as, Job, as it says in Job, God says to the waters, you can come this far and no further. And as a result, we have space for life on dry land and vegetation. Well, then on day six, we're going to see what fills that void, what takes that form and makes life out of it. So you have all of the creepy crawly things that, that move on the earth and that eat the plants. And then you also have human beings. And then again, even the way that human beings play out, it's totally different. Because on day six, God says, let us create man, man and woman, in our image. And so you have this God who isn't creating humanity to be slaves or playthings or just to make God's life easier. We're created in God's own image so we can have genuine relationship with who God is. In fact, part of being created in God's image is to be invited into partnership with God. Granted, it's not an equal partnership, and we need to remember that, but we are invited to be partners with God. We're even invited to be co-creators of God. Part of living out our image of Godness is creating. And so we have this beautiful, loving creation of humanity. And our purpose is to be in communion with God. We see that played out in the next couple chapters where God is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And yeah, there's work to be done, but again, they're partnering with God in that work of caring for the garden and the animals. We even see Adam's own creativity being able to, to put his mark on creation where God brings all these animals and says, whatever Adam calls them, that's what they are. We get a say in this. We have a part to play in this. So we have this very beautiful story of creation that goes very, very different than literally all of the other ones. We only talked about the Babylonian myth, but Egypt, equally violent and super gross in other ways. And just on and on and on. Assyria, Assyria, when they conquer Babylon, they literally go in and just cross out Marduk and put their God's name in. I mean, talk about lazy. But that's what they did. So all these stories kind of go together, and then this one is so very different. One God, relationship, ordering of chaos, no threat, space for life, invitation. This is God. And then there's one more big switch that happens, and that's day seven. So you may or may not know that the number seven is really important in, scriptures, in the scriptures. It's that number of completion and wholeness of shalom. It's the holy number where everything is right. That's why when Solomon weighs his gold and it always comes out to 666, it's always not enough. It's like the anti-God, right? And so in seven, we have this completion. So if you're hearing this story, you expect the culmination, the most exciting part of creation to happen on day seven. If you're like most of us, you expect for humanity to be made on day seven, right? I mean, we're clearly the crowning achievement. But we get to day seven, and it doesn't start like any of the other days. There's no invitation. There's no thing that comes forth. There's a blessing. But, but God comes and says, looks at creation each day and says it's good. 
And on the seventh day, the thing that God creates is Sabbath. The thing that God creates is rest. And it's not because God is depleted. It's because God isn't threatened. God has created this world, but God doesn't have to run around like a chicken with its head cut off and hold it all together. Doesn't have to fight against tohu and bohu and chaos. And God can simply rest. And in that rest, then God creates space for us to rest. And even in that space of rest, creates space for us to be creative and to participate in the bringing of life and the shaping of creation as it goes. So the crowning jewel of creation is not you and me. The crowning jewel is actually Sabbath. Rest. This is the God of Sabbath. But here's the thing. We, uh, we might be thinking, or you might be thinking, Roger, that's really interesting. And you might not. Hopefully you are. But you might be thinking, Roger, that's really interesting. And whether you are or not, your next thought is maybe, what does this have to do with us, right? I mean, pretty much nobody holds that there are all these different gods, and when you go to war, whichever one wins, that's the god that wins. And, and you know, we don't have all these different, uh, like, idols and things that we're chasing after and things that would tempt us to follow after all these other gods. We don't feel like God abandons us, uh, you know, or is defeated by somebody else. So, so what does this have to do with us? Well, it has to do with us because of what follows in the next couple of chapters. Because while Adam and Eve, they walk with God and they exercise their creativity and they move into that life and they foster life in the garden, they also come to this tree that God said, don't eat that fruit. And they end up doing just that. They eat it. And they don't eat it because it's, it looks good and, and might be tasty. They talk about that. That's just themselves talking them into it. They eat the fruit because of what the serpent says. The serpent says, look, God said don't eat this, and if you do, you'll die, but you won't. See, God is actually threatened. Because if you eat this, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. See, that's the thing, is Adam and Eve, they're not content in this unequal partnership. They want to be in control. They want to make the decisions for themselves. They want to be on the same plane as God. And so they take that desire and they consume it. And their eyes are open. But what they see eventually is that they are consumed by that same desire. So now they are aware of threat to life because it's come back in. It's almost like if you took Tohu and Bohu and, and God's knocked them out in the ring and then they go and do smelling salt and slap their faces and throw water in it. And now chaos threatens life. Not because of God, but because we want to be God for ourselves. And I think the thing that drives them is the same thing that will later drive the Hebrews who have been saved and taken out of slavery and they, they've gone into the desert and now God has come and said, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And God's holiness encompasses this mountain, Mount Sinai, the place of the covenant. And it's so holy that God says, you gotta prepare a bunch and then even though you're prepared, don't let animals touch it. You don't touch it, you'll be overwhelmed by my holiness and die. So it's a pretty sacred place, but only because of God's presence. We don't even make treks to Sinai. But anyway, during this covenant time, Moses ascends the mountain because the people said, whoa, we can't talk to God ourselves. You go up. So Moses goes up, and it turns out it takes a while. So a lot of them begin to think, you know what happened? Moses messed up, and God killed him. So now we don't have anything. Like, God's going to leave us. 
And their concern was, you look around at all these other peoples around us, they're going to see, like the, maybe they've heard of what Yahweh did in Egypt, but they're going to see that Yahweh's not with us anymore. And so they're just going to take what they want. See, the thing that drives the Hebrews in the desert, the thing that I think even drove Adam and Eve, the thing that drives us is fear. And so we grasp at a way to be in control. And so the Hebrews, they go to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, this is our plight. We have no God. Make for us our God. And so Aaron takes the jewelry, which, by the way, was the same jewelry that they stripped from the Egyptians as they left. It should have been the foundation of their new life. But anyway, they take this gold jewelry, and he fashions with his own two hands a golden calf. And they bow down and worship and say, this is Yahweh, the God who brought us out of Egypt. Now, it's weird because it's like, well, that's not Yahweh. They're worshiping a different God. But really, in their mind, I think that they're worshiping Yahweh. But the thing that they've done is they've tried to take Yahweh and fit him into this box of a golden calf because the wildness of Yahweh is frightening. Yeah, Yahweh's with us now, but if he killed Moses, what's he going to do to us? When does Yahweh abandon us? And we need other people to see that we have our God. So it becomes this physical representation of God. It also becomes like a cage for God. They have control. Yahweh can't leave feet don't work. They have control. And in that, they think they have security. Meanwhile, God's telling Moses with this covenant stuff, man, there's some rules you got to follow. Like, don't have any other gods before me and don't make images of God, even me. So it turns out this doesn't go so well for them. And eventually what Moses does is he comes down and he shatters that idol and he grinds it into dust and he puts it in the river and makes them drink it. They consume it, and again, it makes them sick because they've given their lives over to something that can only bring death. So what does that have to do with us? We don't worship golden calves, except maybe Wall Street. There's one there. The problem is we still have those same fears. We still seek to provide for ourselves security. We still want to be in control. We are still frightened even by the wildness of Yahweh. And when crisis happens, we look around and go, where is God in this? I better fix that. And so we take our own two hands and we fashion for ourselves different gods. Maybe not golden uh, calves and, and idols in that way, but we fashion different gods. And these gods go by different names. Sometimes it's money or success or sex or nationalism or even family even religion, all of these things we can form and shape into this God. But here's the thing. Any of these gods that we're creating, we're really just trying to worship ourselves and to be God for ourselves. See, we create in our image maybe a slightly better image of who we are, but, but in all of this, we're seeking security. We're seeking control over our own destiny, whether it's to, to protect our families, to protect our health, to protect our nations, whatever it is. But the problem is, it always brings more death. I mean, think about it. One of the ways that humanity is most creative is in war. I mean, we are really good at coming up with new and terrible ways to kill each other. And yet, even though we've perverted this creativity and we put all this effort and energy into it, it never brings true peace. We are always afraid of the next attack. We're always afraid of the next enemy. We're always afraid of our borders being overrun. We're always afraid, just like Pharaoh was afraid of his own slaves. 
because he amassed all this stuff and he looked at it and said, oh man, they don't have the stuff. They're going to try to take my stuff. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom at the time, was afraid of the slaves. And so he began to kill their babies for population control. We have those same fears. And some of these fears, sometimes it's security in our, in our self-worth. And so we want to, to make sure that we are worthy and good enough. And the best way we can do that is to look at you and say, I'm better than you. And I strive to be better than you so I know that I'm good enough. And if I'm not better than you, I will lie so that I can sleep at night knowing that I am good enough. The problem is these, these gods that we fashion with our own two hands, before we know it, there are chains around those hands. And those gods that we created to give us life and security, we soon find that though we created them with our own two hands, we are enslaved to them. We serve them and we give more and more of our life only to find more and more death and chaos and uncertainty and fear. And so what do we do? We double down. We double down on our gods, but as we do, we just cast more chains and more chains and more chains, and we are in prison. But the good news is, just like that Babylonian story wasn't reality, our slavery isn't reality either. See, God has set us free from all of that. The problem is, we still live into the slavery. And so we're like, again, the Hebrews, when they're brought out of Egypt, when they're in the desert, witnessing miracles like water from a rock and manna from heaven, they still, whenever they face a challenge, they grumble. And weirdly, they begin to look back on their, on their good days in Egypt. They long for the pots of meat that they would eat and the homes that they had, and even for the graves that were there. They look longingly back on their life that was really death. We do the same thing, and I think it's because even though that doesn't make a lot of sense, we've been so shaped and informed by our slavery for so long that our identity is wrapped up in it. And even if we can recognize that it's not healthy for us, the familiarity gives us some of that comfort that we desire. It's kind of like the, the circus elephant when it's a baby and they put the, the shackle on it and the chain and that baby elephant pulls and pulls and no matter how hard it pulls, it can't break the chain. But when that elephant grows up, it could snap the chain like it's a, a string. But it doesn't even try. It feels the cold, hard steel against its leg, and it goes, I'm, I'm trapped. I used to try to break free from this, but I've given up. Lost hope. And so it lives as though it's not free. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 6. six he says, Because you are sons and daughters... God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if you are his child, then you are also an heir to God. At the time when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that aren't God's by nature. But now, after knowing God, or rather, having been known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless world system? And this is a key line. Do you want to be slaves again? Seems like the obvious answer is no. It's like when, when Jesus asked the, the man, the lame man, he says, do you want to be healed? Seems like such a stupid question. Of course I want to be healed. Do I want to be slave? No, I want to be free. 
But the reality is so often we don't live that out. Sure, we might accept the freedom for a little while, but then when things get rough and the storms of life come, we start grasping for anything, anything solid, even if it's our own chain again. But what we soon come to find is, is that that cycle repeats itself and we have more fear and more chains are added on. Eventually, the weight of those chains is overwhelming. And we do discover that the thing that we wanted to bring us life is only going to bring us death. We find that we are not enough. We are not enough to be God. When we have the weight of the world on our shoulders, it soon begins to crush us because we recognize we are not enough. And that just leads us to more fear and more enslavement. And the cycle can keep going and going and going. And we can get to a place where we are simply hopeless. But here's the thing. There is hope. We have hope because the God of the Sabbath is different. Different than all these other gods. The God of the Sabbath is enough. Enough to invite rather than to coerce. Enough to create us as partners and co-creators and enough to forgive us when we use our freedom and creativity to sin against God and against one another. See, the God of the Sabbath is enough, enough to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and also enough then to make that hope of freedom a reality. The God of the Sabbath is enough to say to the sea, you may come this far and no further, and the God of the Sabbath is enough to part that sea to bring the people from death to life. The God of the Sabbath is enough to make water flow from rocks in the parched desert, enough to bring manna from heaven, and enough to give us our daily bread. The God of the Sabbath is enough to order the chaos and fill the voids, enough to sleep in the midst of the storm, and enough to calm that same storm with a simple word of peace. Be still. The God of the Sabbath is enough to make the dry bones live again, enough to bring the exiles home, enough to heal and to restore, enough to bring us comfort even in the shadow of the valley of death. The God of the Sabbath is enough to covenant with us even though we are so often a fickle and faithless people. And the God of the Sabbath is enough to love us so completely as to give us the Son. The God of the Sabbath is enough to give hope to the hopeless, enough to bring life where all we see is death, enough even to call forth the dead from the grave, enough to make all things new. See, the God of the Sabbath, the God of the Sabbath is even enough to rest. And because God is enough, we can rest in God's enoughness. See, the creator and God of the Sabbath is enough so that we don't have to be enough. Or another way to say it is we are enough because our God is enough. And the God of the Sabbath is enough to break our chains and set us free question still remains. Do we want that freedom? Do we want to be slaves again? In reality, we often live into that. But it's a false reality. In the real reality, the God of the Sabbath is Lord. And in that reality, we have rest and freedom. So even though we habitually live into enslavement, the hope and the prayer is that we'll accept the freedom that we will let God show us that these chains have been broken, 
that we've been brought out of Egypt and into this new land that God has covenanted with us. That in love, the same creator who invited us to partner at the beginning continues to invite us to partner in the recreation. So often we try to take that power of creation and and recreate God so that God looks more like us. But the hope and the prayer is that we'll give ourselves over, that we'll say, not my will, but yours be done. And that we will recognize our purpose is to be imaged in the image of God that we would live into and out of that. When we do, that we would experience freedom. We would experience new life. That we would experience a peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray. Father God, you are God of the Sabbath. You are the, the God whose spirit, whose ruach hovers over those dark waters of chaos and then invites life to come forth. You are the God who breathes that same ruach, that same spirit into our lungs so that we now live. And you are the God who gives us your son so that we can live life and to live it abundantly, not enslaved to any false gods, not enslaved to ourselves, not enslaved to the struggle to be enough. So God, we just praise you today. We praise you that you are enough. God, I pray that you would open my eyes and open our eyes to see those places where we've given over looking for life, but given over ourselves to things of death. God, help us to rehabit our thinking and to rehabit our lives. And God, help us to look more and more like you each day. Amen.